Well, do turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter uh, 14, a passage we read together. You've got it printed in the bulletin, but it would be good for you to find it in your Bible, page 923, using the Pew Bible. Today, of course, is the day we celebrate uh, the resurrection of Jesus, although in the Bible, I suppose, we need to say this, that uh, Scripture links the resurrection of Jesus to his exaltation and his present state, that is, his present state of enthronement. He sits on the throne of David, he sits at God's right hand, and he rules history for the purpose uh, of his church in the world. And uh, in the book of Acts, this idea of the risen Lord Jesus, still living, reigning, and ruling, is the key thought that drives the story. We've been seeing this over and over again as we've been studying the book of Acts. And we're watching, as we read this book, the mission of the risen Jesus. The mission of the risen Jesus. And so Luke has repeated the story of the resurrection. He has described the risen Jesus both at the end of volume 1 and then at the beginning of volume 2 of the book we call Acts. And he's described that Jesus now exalted at the right hand of God. That was part of the gospel message. This Jesus, God has raised him and he's exalted him and he's given him this name of Lord, this name of Lord and Messiah and calls the nations now to acknowledge this Jesus as the Lord and Messiah. And in the previous chapter, chapter 13 of Acts, we've been introduced to what is the core message of Christianity in Paul's First sermon, a sermon preached to both Jews and Gentiles, a sermon that summarizes the essence, the heart of the Christian message, and which uses this language of good news to describe it is gospel. Uh, so, for example, uh, as he reaches the climax of his sermon in chapter 13, verse 30, he, he announces the news to these people that this man, Jesus, who had been taken and put to death and then taken down from the cross and was laid in a tomb, he announces the message, God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, the children, by raising Jesus. And then he goes on to quote from some scriptures to confirm that this was, in fact, what we were led to expect that God should do. So it's the risen Jesus that is at the very heart of the gospel message, and it's the gospel that is driving the church to its mission to the world. And what we see at the beginning of chapter 14 is what that mission looked like, as a pattern has begun to emerge and will continue to Uh, be followed in succeeding chapters, that this good news message carried by the apostles out to the world is taken first to the Jews. Uh, It is believed by some. It is opposed by others. It is then taken to the Gentiles, to non-Jews. And the evidences that this is a work of Jesus are confirmed by the signs and wonders that they perform by the message that they preach, and by the experiences that they undergo as the followers of Jesus. So it's with those ideas in mind then, I want to very 
briefly this evening, point you to what we learn about the gospel from this chapter. We saw what its content is in chapter 13. But now what the gospel under, undergoes as it goes out into the world. First of all, we see the gospel provoking division. So two things are happening side by side as we read the story of Acts. One is the prophecy of Jesus right at the very beginning of the book is coming true. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That prophecy is being fulfilled, and here we see it being fulfilled as the ends of the earth are being pushed. Now in Iconium, in Lystra, the gospel is being proclaimed there. And the second thing that you discover in the book of Acts is that the kingdom of God never advances in the world without roadblocks and difficulties and hindrances along the way. I don't know what they expected, these early Christians, when they set out with their message, but in verse 22 of this chapter, Paul uh, tells us what they found. What they found was that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. You cannot enter the kingdom of God. You cannot enforce the message of the kingdom. You cannot spread the influence of the kingdom of God without meeting with resistance to that gospel. So there's an intentional pattern of ministry, uh, apostolic ministry that is developing. They go, first of all, to the synagogue. You can see that happening in verse 1 of chapter 14. At Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Now why did they start there? It isn't just simply a a good missional ploy. You go to the people that you know first and you talk to the people that have some kind of cultural background with yourself. That's the kind of thing we do. We identify our demographic, the kind of people who are like us, and then we aim for people like us with the gospel, first of all. That isn't what underlies this particular practice of the apostles. We know that they go to the, Jew the Jews first because salvation is of the Jews. They are themselves Jews. Salvation is of the Jews, Jesus said. And Isaiah had pictured a day in which the gospel, the good news, would one day go out to the nations, the Goyim, the Gentiles, who would come to Jews seeking the way of salvation. And what is being announced in the book of Acts is that that day has arrived. It is to the Jews that God has revealed his promises and it was from the Jews that the message of the Messiah has gone out to the world. And so he goes to the synagogue and people in the synagogue, a great number of them, both Jews and Greeks, believe. There's a miracle right there that anybody should believe the gospel. In chapter 13, verse 48, we read about Gentiles hearing it and rejoicing and glorifying the word of God. And we read this, that as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. In other words, there is a mystery attached to the gospel work whereby the work of God in his sovereignty is such that here and there among the people there are those who mysteriously, amazingly embrace the gospel and are brought into life. So there's a division then that begins to take place. Do you notice this? A great number of Jews and Gentiles believed, verse 1, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles that didn't believe and poisoned their minds against the brothers. There's a division that is taking place. A division that's taking place among Jews. 
a division that is identifying that among the Jewish people there are those who are true Jews, who are Jews inwardly, and those who are Jews merely outwardly. That there's a difference, one that the New Testament recognizes, and you see even in the Old Testament, of those who by their faith manifest the fact that they have a, de a definite living relationship with God, and there are those who, while they make a profession of religion, nonetheless lack that vital living element of true faith that identifies them as those who belong to God. What we discover here is that it is their unbelief that marks them out as being disobedient. They were disobedient to the truth, literally. They disobeyed the truth. That's what we're told about these people. The implication is that unbelief is disobedience. That belief is a command that God gives to human beings, whoever they are. He says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That is an invitation. That is a command. When you disobey that command to believe in Jesus, then your unbelief places you in the category of the disobedient. And so disobedient Jews stir up Gentiles, verse 2, and poison their minds against the apostles. This is an amazing thing in itself, given the fact that there are tensions that exist between Jews and Gentiles. The Jews normally don't want anything to do with the Goyim, with the Gentiles. The Gentiles in the first century didn't want very much to do with Jews either. The Gentiles regarded the Jews with their Sabbath custom, that is of having a day off once a week, they regarded that as an excuse for laziness and indolence. The Jews, on the other hand, regarded the Gentiles in their idolatrous practices as being unclean. And according to their law, so they were. And yet here we find Jews linking up with Gentiles, amazing, un, uh, unexpected bedfellows in this, in this business, in linking arms together in their hostility towards this incipient Christian movement, and in particular in their rejection of and hostility towards this Christian message. We're told in verse 4, the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the anti-Christian Jews, while some were with the apostles. Now I remind you, not all of the Jews were anti-Christian. Many of the Jews believed. In other words, faith, faith in the heart of Jews was aroused by the gospel and they embraced their Messiah. But as a result of the gospel, there was a split, there was a schism that the word for division there is the basic root of our English word, schism. And here the apostles respond. Look at verse 3. Well, what do they do? Do they run away? Do they, do they give up in despair? We're told they remained there a long time. They stayed boldly speaking the word of the Lord. They bore witness to the word of God's grace. What did they do? They stayed where they were and they continued to teach this word. You notice what it says about this word. It was a word of grace. It was a word about the Lord Jesus. It was the word that Paul has elaborated on in chapter 13. We, we don't, we're not told what he preached in chapter 14 because we're told in chapter 13 what it was. It was the, the very heart of his message. And in that message he had talked freely about about Christ crucified. He talked freely about the rejection by the people. He talked freely about the sufferings that he bore. He talked freely about the curse of God that he endured by being pinned on that tree and thereby being rejected by his own people and dismissed 
from the promised land vertically as he's removed from the promised land. He had taught that. He had taught about the resurrection. He had talk, taught about the fact that Scripture was fulfilled in all that Jesus had accomplished by his earthly ministry. He had taught that message over and over again. He taught the word of grace. He talked about a word of grace to people perhaps who were locked into a view of, of favored, of merit that, that comes conditionally, of favor that is shown conditionally, of love that is given conditionally. Maybe you were brought up in a family and that was the basis on which you were shown affection or given approval. You were given affection and approval on the basis of your behavior and the way in which you measured up to the expectations of your parents. Maybe that's the way it was at the school you went to, and that has affected the way you relate to other people in your life, because you understand that favor is something that is conditionally given to worthy achievers. But when you talk about the grace of God, you are hearing about something that is freely given to unworthy sinners. It is the word of grace. It is a word that breaks into our mindset and our mindset is that somehow or other I should deserve something that God has to give me. So I, I, I can deserve God being nice to me because I'm a nice person. Or I can deserve God's being good to me because I'm a good person. And very often that's the way we respond, don't we? When we hear the message of sin in church, people say to me, Well, you know, Liam, I'm, if you only knew me, I'm really a very good person. And I say to them, I really wish I knew you that well to know that you were a really good person. But of course, sin isn't even all about goodness and badness. Sin is about our relationship primarily with God. And what we discover about these people is this. What was wrong with these Jews that didn't believe? Was it that they weren't nice? Was it that they weren't keeping the law of Moses? Was it that they weren't following the cleanliness rules and regulations of that law? No. What was it that constituted these people disobedient to God? It was this, that their God, their God through their scriptures had spoken clearly to them and their Messiah had come, their Messiah had appeared, their Messiah had performed signs and wonders, their Messiah had risen from the dead and in spite of all that their Messiah had done, they had rejected their own Messiah. They despised Him and rejected Him. You see, a person who is able to keep all of the second table of the law, all those things like not stealing and not bearing false witness and, and not being disrespectful to your parents and all of those things that you find in the second table of the law, a person can keep all of those things. But if you reject the only Savior God offers to humanity, you are without hope and without God in the world. And what the message of grace says is that God has come in Christ Jesus and He has come with everything we need to have a right relationship with God. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Here's Paul's message. He preaches the word of grace. By grace we've been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. He preached this. He preached this boldly. 
And God butted in on his preaching. Do you notice that? God butts in on the preaching because as he's preaching, what does God do? God does signs and wonders through the apostles. And immediately people realize this apostle is linked to Jesus. Jesus did signs and wonders. The apostles are doing signs and wonders. There's a relationship between what Jesus did and what these apostles did. So you need to know this about miracles in the New Testament. Miracles in the New Testament were given not to prove the existence of God. Miracles in the New Testament are given to authenticate God's true agents of revelation. That is, the people you should listen to, the people you should learn from, the people you should follow in their teaching. That's why the signs and wonders were given. You find this in the great encounter between Jesus and a, a rabbi called Nicodemus. And uh, this man, Nicodemus, comes to Jesus and says this to him, Rabbi, we know, we know that you are a teacher come from God. How do we know? For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. You see? Nobody can do what the, nobody can do the things you are doing unless God is with him. These signs and wonders are of God, they're from God. Therefore, you are a teacher come from God. He links what? He links the teaching to the signs and wonders. You listen to the teaching because these are the people that do the signs and wonders. That's why Paul, when he's arguing with the Corinthians and he's arguing for the apostolic foundation of the church, he argues and reasons with them and he says, who did the signs and wonders among you? The apostles did these signs and wonders among you. When the writer to the Hebrews is arguing for you to listen carefully to what has been said by those who brought the gospel message to you, the apostles, he says, did they not do signs and wonders among you, confirming their status as those who bring the word of God to you? So they're doing this. They're preaching the gospel of grace. God butts in and does these signs and wonders. And then an attempt is made, verses 47 by both Jews and Gentiles, with their rulers, to mistreat them and to stone them. And when they learned of it, they fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. Let me tell you something about Paul and his friends. They were born again, but they weren't born yesterday. When you see a mob coming at you and you see the threat of death, you don't have to stay there, you can get out. You're allowed to do that. And that's what they did. They've been preaching in the synagogue. They've been proclaiming the unsearchable riches of Christ. They've been proclaiming the gospel. And this alliance of unbelieving Jews and Gentiles come to kill him. The gospel provokes division. Wherever it goes. Whether it's preached by nice people or not nice people. Whether it's witnessed to by folks who, who, who you, you know, really admire and respect. Wherever that gospel is clearly articulated invariably the gospel itself divides. Jesus said, I have come to cause division in the earth. Secondly, the gospel produces misunderstanding. Can you believe it? From Iconium, the apostles travel to Lystra, and there they encounter real paganism. And as they go into Lystra, there's a man sitting there who would not use his feet. We're told he was crippled from birth and had never walked and he listened to Paul speaking. There's always one. Sometimes in the course of a sermon, I think it's Barnhouse says this on one occasion, sometimes in the course of a sermon, 
as you're looking out on the congregation, you notice somebody who's listening. It doesn't happen often. But occasionally you see that there's somebody who's listening, but they're listening in an unusual way. You know that a change, in a sense, comes over their, their face. You know that person perhaps came disinterested, perhaps came preoccupied, but in the course of listening to the Word of God, suddenly they engage, suddenly they are captivated. Some, something is going on inside their mind and in their heart. And as Paul went to this, to this place, he saw this one person, this crippled man. He saw the change come over him. He realized that this man was listening. He was listening with his inner ears, with the heart. And faith was being born in this man's heart. And Paul picks him out of the crowd and he says to him, listen, stand upright on your feet. And the man sprang up and began walking. It's a great picture. It's a picture, by the way, with great parallels. Let me point out there are parallels between this miracle and the miracle of Jesus back in Luke chapter 4. Because both Paul and Jesus confront the devil. Both Paul and Jesus preach in the synagogue and are rejected. Both Paul and Jesus heal many people, including a paralytic. There's also a parallel between Paul's miracle here and Peter's miracle, right at the beginning of Acts. Both Paul and Peter are near a, are near a temple. There's Peter near the temple of Jerusalem. Paul, he's near the, the temple of Zeus here in Lystra. Both of them fix their gaze on the man before healing them. Both men, when they're healed, paralyzed, are able to jump up, leap up to their feet. On both occasions, people attribute the power of the apostles to the apostles. And on both occasions, the apostles deny it out of hand, reject it out of hand, that it's anything to do with them. See, what Luke is doing is showing you a clear con contrast here. A connection with Jesus, a connection between Peter and Paul. This is the ongoing work of Jesus in the church but also a contrast in the response to the miracle between the Jews and Gentiles, while at the same time demonstrating Paul's apostleship. Peter and Paul, both men, one to the Jews, one to the Gentiles, are apostles of Jesus Christ. There's only one gospel. There aren't two kinds of gospel, one for Jews and one for Gentiles. Only one gospel for the world, for the world. Preached to diverse audiences whether in Jerusalem or in Lystra, the leaping of the lame man signals the fulfillment of God's promise through Isaiah to open blind eyes, to unstop deaf ears, to cause the lame to leap like a deer and to make the mute tongue shout for joy. God is at work. God's kingdom has invaded the world by word and spirit. Now the thing, you notice the effect it has. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted their voices and they said in Klingon, oh, that, sorry, that's Star Trek, isn't it? They said, well, it sounds like Klingon to me. Uh, uh, probably it sounded like that to the apostle Paul, Paul. They said in Klingon, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. I mean, that happened in one of the episodes of Star Trek, I'm sure it did, where they, they, they beamed down onto some planet or other and, and they did something and, 
and the, the people thought they were gods and they tried to create them, uh, make a temple, bring them into their temple and make them gods. So it was taken right straight from Acts. The whole thing, the whole scenario was taken from the book of Acts. Only Paul hadn't beamed in and could not say to Scotty, beam me up out of trouble. Well, that would be a useful thing for missionaries to have, I would think. So why is this, what's going on in this story? Let me tell you a little bit about Lystra. Lystra was a cultural backwater. It was kind of, it's kind of like where I came from. Actually, not the town I was in, but the town over from us, a place called Motherwell. You didn't want to come from Motherwell. If you came from Motherwell, you would stretch it so you came from near Hamilton. Never Motherwell. And uh, Lister was a bit like that. Cultural backwater. People hadn't been out much. They didn't get away very often. Uh, they were described in the literature of the day as being rustic and uncivilized. And in their gullibility, it's their gullibility that we see here. They're astonished at this miracle. Well, you would be. And they identify Barnabas. Barnabas must have been more impressive than Paul. Because they make Barnabas, Zeus, who is their number one god. And Paul, apparently Paul was quite good at communication because they make him Hermas, who is the messenger of the Greek deities. Now, what's going on here? Well, there's actually a bit of background that's very interesting here because Ovid, the uh, Latin poet, records a legend in that area of the gods, the same two gods, Zeus and Hermas, visiting that region disguised as mortals seeking lodging. An elderly couple welcomed them into their home, and their house was transformed into a temple. But all the homes of the people who hadn't welcomed them into their home were nuked. Well, that's not what Ovid says, but you know, it's, it's effectively, they were nuked. They were obliterated for doing that. And the memory of, or the knowledge of this legend was still going around. We know it was still going around in the third century, so a little bit after the time of Paul. And so... Even in the third century, these two gods were still being worshipped in that area. I think the people had that legend in their mind. I think they're saying to themselves, who does this? Who just walks into town, says to somebody, get up, and somebody who all their lifetime has been in this crippled state is able to leap onto their feet and run around and be completely cured. Only the gods can do that kind of thing. And so they thought to themselves, if this is a visit of Zeus and Hermes, we better treat them better this time or else all our houses will be nuked. And so they gave them this great welcome. Meanwhile, Paul and Barnabas, who don't know Klingon, have absolutely no idea what's going on. They're looking at this, this conversation that's going on. They don't know what's being said. I think it was something about the bulls that were being brought out, being dressed for sacrifice and uh, the floral wreaths that were being banded around all over the place made them suspicious. Something is going on here that we're not quite sure about. And so they tore their clothes. They realized what was going on. They tore their clothes to express their absolute dismay at the blasphemy of the idea of worshipping mere men as if they were gods. And that leads us to the last thing. The gospel prompts clarification. All we have in Acts is a fairly consistent outline of the usual gospel preaching of the early church. The content basically is the same for Jew or Gentile. Gentiles require a little bit of explanation. They, they require some 
introduction to the categories. The, it is the Jews who give us all of the intellectual categories for understanding God's revelation to the world. And uh, so here we find the Apostle Paul now, he's defending. Now what you need to understand here is he's not preaching the gospel at this point. What he's trying to do is stop these people from blaspheming against God by offering sacrifices to them, to him and Barnabas, as gods. That's what he's trying to do. He's not, so don't look at what he says here and think, this is a strange message that he's preaching to these people. Notice the context. Why are you doing these things? We are men of like nature with you. We're no different from you. The, tri, uh, the, the true God is, is different from human creatures. He says uh, in criticism of the Greek myths where gods were all too human in their emotions, including their sexual lust for human women. Zeus reputedly fathered children by eight goddesses and 15 human women. So Paul says, look, we're not, we're not gods. Real God, the real God doesn't do that kind of thing. We're human. We're like you. Your gods may be like you, but the God isn't like you. We bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to the living God, to our living God. And he goes on to say that formerly the nations went their own way, worshipping products of their own imagination, but now, now things were changed. This is a new moment in the history of the world. No matter where you live in the world, no matter what religious background you have in the world, no matter what is feeding your faith in the world, this is a new day in which God commands that people turn from their worthless idols to himself and find salvation. He's echoing the language of Isaiah 45. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Now in his explanation, in his clarification of what is going on here, he tells them something about God's common grace. The God that there is has made everything. The God that there is has made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that's in them. The God, before he even sends the good news of Jesus the Savior through Paul and Barnabas, has not left himself without a witness. All the nations, in his kindness, have seen evidence of his hand. The rain that falls, the benefits that come, the common grace that's shown, extends to all the creatures that God has made. He begins by telling them of the Creator. He's telling them that there's a God that's different from their gods. And that this God is known to them. He assumes the knowledge of this God. He assumes that this, not, this knowledge of God is a racial memory implanted in the minds of every human being. That the knowledge of this God is something we suppress. It's not something we don't have. It's something we keep a lid on. We keep it down. We will not let it out. The natural man suppresses the knowledge of God. He pushes it from his consciousness. And so Paul speaks in these terms. John Calvin in the Institutes says there are times in the consciousness of the natural man when, as it were, he is dragged before the tri divine tri tribunal and forced to acknowledge there is a God before whom he must one day give an account. When you read Paul here, he hasn't come to the gospel yet. He's doing a bit of pre-gospel here. He's actually trying to subdue the enthusiasm of this crowd. 
but he's also establishing a platform. He's laying the foundation by talking about a God who created the world, about their accountability to this God, and he's introducing into their minds the concept of sin, because if they do what they're going to do, they're going to sin against this God who has created them. And that's as far as he gets. Because they are determined that they're, going to, that they're going to offer sacrifices to them. In fact, what we read here in verse 18 is that, that even with these words, they were scarcely restrained from offering sacrifice to them. In other words, this sermon didn't work very well for Paul. I'm not talking about this one, his. This one might not have worked very well either, but Paul's definitely did not work very well. They were scarcely, it's like just keeping you awake and no more. That was what it was like for Paul that day. They were scarcely restrained from offering sacrifices to him. Well, let me say a couple of things as we close. One of the lessons we learn from this story is that some sermons don't get very far. They don't ever get to the point. Paul's here didn't get very far. Second thing I'd say is that Satan can use misplaced praise to keep people from hearing the whole truth. That's what happened on this occasion. The apostle was on a roll. There were people listening to him. He had performed this great miracle. You'd think everything is set up for a really great explanation of the gospel. Nothing happens. Misplaced praise can sometimes be the very instrument the devil uses to keep people from hearing the whole truth. Let me illustrate it like this. You have a popular young communicator. So it's obviously not me. You have a popular young communicator. And he discovers that if he gives so much of the truth, more people come than if he gives all of the truth. And the praise of the people for this much of the truth is so great and his popularity in preaching so much of the truth becomes so well received. He stops there. Sometimes misplaced praise keeps people from hearing the whole truth of the gospel. And that's where we see the danger here. And the third thing I'd say is it's easy to exalt the messenger rather than the message. And the last thing I'd say is don't trust the crowd when you're in the flavor of the month because next month you may just be a bad taste in their mouth. But that's next week's exciting episode for which you must return. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would give us a view of the gospel that is rich and deep. Gospel that often is misunderstood by people. Gospel that's often side lined by circumstances. But the one message that can bring Jews and Gentiles together into a new community, the one message that can bring crippled people to their feet in joy is a sign and foretaste of that great day when all cripples will be healed. and All your people will be raised from the dead and given new life and power in that new resurrection day. We pray you would help us to keep the gospel clear and in the front of our minds and not allow ourselves to be distracted away from it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.